Our text today comes from Luke 22, and it's verses 39 through 46. So hear now the word of the Lord. And Jesus came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. The disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we have been in the Gospel of Luke for over a year. Pre-COVID even, we started in Advent of 2019. And the first part of the series we, we titled Rediscovering Jesus because we wanted just to, to meditate on, on going back to the basics of, of who was Jesus. Uh, and here in this, this last part of Luke, we've, we've called it Rediscovering Jesus' Kingdom. That however we've approached this Gospel of Luke, we wanted to just narrow in on, on who was Jesus and can we maybe set aside our preconceived notions and just rediscover who he is. And we've seen Jesus in a lot of different scenarios where he's tangling with his enemies who are trying to trap him. Where he engages in dramatic healings and captures the imagination of an entire city. We've seen him in moments of compassion that moves its watchers to tears. And we've, we've watched him teach in brilliant ways, mesmerizing even the very people who thought they could trap him. So we've seen Jesus in lots of ways, but most always in control, with power, uh, dominating the situation. In this text, we see Jesus in a totally different and new light. He's withdrawn into the Garden of Gethsemane after some days of teaching in the temple where the crowds are amazed by him. And now he's withdrawn to pray alone, and the intensity of this moment leads us to see Jesus in a way we have never seen him yet in the Gospel of Luke. He is vulnerable. He is afraid. He is facing the intensity of moment with such fear. He's he's actually sweating out blood. So how do we get to understand what happens in this garden with Jesus. Well, Luke gives us a help in the text because this text begins and ends with the same line from Jesus to his disciples. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. It's how it begins and how it ends. So if we're going to understand This moment of the Garden of Gethsemane, we need to understand why Jesus looks at his disciples in this moment and says, pray that you do not enter into temptation. Why does he say that? Why is he so afraid his disciples might enter into temptation? And by extension, why 
should you and I be concerned about, about praying that we do not enter into temptation? We're going to let that question guide our time through this text. But to begin to answer that question, what, why should we why should we be concerned about entering into temptation? We need to, to know what Luke means, or what Jesus means through Luke's writing, by this word temptation. Now, when I think we hear that word initially, we typically think of the classic, like, devil on one shoulder, angel on another, saying, do this, don't do that, do that, don't, that, that that's, we, we sort of, we, we label it down to a moment of, should I do this thing or not do this thing? And, and to illustrate, uh, the staff, as a staff, we were in a conversation a few weeks ago, uh, asking the question, what is our favorite pizza in Kansas City? Most of us, uh, Joseph, Andrew, and I, we all moved here from Chicago, which is the best place to find pizza in the world. If you're from New York, I'm sorry, you're incorrect. Chicago is the best place to find pizza in the world. So we started asking, and we went around, Kansas, what's our favorite? And, and Joseph's answer to that question, he's laughing back there because he knows what's coming, was Domino's. And, and rather than being embarrassed by his answer, which was the proper response, he actually doubled down. He's like, no, have you had their Philly cheesesteak pizza? Which, no, and I never will, because that sounds awful. But he continued to defend uh, Domino's, and eventually he, he moved into, but they've got the best dessert, these, uh, these cinnamon twists. And he was so convinced that these were so good, he actually ordered them on the spot. Because it was Domino's, it took over two hours to get to us. But when it finally came, there it is, right? It's, cinnamon, it's domino cinnamon twist, and that's a moment of temptation because I, I'm in the middle. I, I'm, I plan to run the Chicago Marathon later this fall, so I need to be in good shape. I need to be intentional with what I put into my body. And listen, uh, for a domino cinnamon twist, a normal human being, there's no reason to ever put that into your body, let alone when you're training for a marathon. So there I am in a moment of temptation. Do I partake or do I not? Right? The devil is saying, yes, take and eat. And the angel is saying, come on, you, you know better. Right? Is, that, is that what Jesus means by temptation? Something's in front of you and you have a choice. Do it or don't do it. Say it or don't say it. Respond or don't respond. Is, is that what Jesus means by temptation? Because that's typically what we think. And I, I don't think that's what Jesus means. But I, I want to push into this word, this Greek word, temptation, which is the word because it shows up in crucial moments in the Gospel of Luke. In order to find what I think Jesus and Luke means by this term, by looking at the three core places this, this word shows up. The previous use of this word is in the Lord's Prayer. We prayed it earlier, the Matthew version. Luke's prayer of the Lord, version of the Lord's Prayer is a little bit more succinct. And here, here it is. Uh, Jesus says to his disciples to pray like this. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. It's almost the exact phrase that Jesus says to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Pray that you do not enter into temptation. So for Jesus, whatever this word means... He is saying that is a central prayer of the Christian life. We pray as Christians, Lord, keep me from temptation. But we need to go further. What, is, what does that mean? The other, another place it shows up is in one of Luke's, uh, one of Jesus' most important 
parables, the parable of the sower, which that's a parable of a farmer who goes out, just scatters seed over many different types of soil. And over time, the seed that falls in the good soil grows up. Seed that falls in bad soil does not grow up. And Jesus, he sort of tells this parable, which he later explains as the, the, the laying out of the seed is preaching the gospel. And the various soils are the way people respond to the preaching of the gospel. Some people hear the gospel, they believe it, and they follow Jesus to their death. Other people never believe it. Some people, and this is where this word parasmon shows up, some people believe the gospel initially, or it looks like they believe it. And then something happens. And this is what Jesus says in explaining that parable in Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 8, verse 13. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while. And in time of testing, they fall away. That word testing, parasmon, is the same as temptation in Luke 22. And here we get a little bit broader of a view. This isn't just a moment of temptation. This is a, tr- this is a season, a trial, a time. It's elongated. And then the last, and I think most important word, place where this word shows up, that I think has direct link to the Garden of Gethsemane moment in Luke 22, is in Luke chapter 4, right after Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Jesus has fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, Satan comes to him with three temptations. Jesus does not give in to any of them. And then we read this in Luke chapter 4, verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, every parasmon, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. So whatever Jesus encountered with Satan in that wilderness moment was a parasmon. And again, that's an extended trial and it's an extended time. It's not one moment of decision. It's an extended period. And there are three temptations, trials that Satan put Jesus to. The first one was Satan told Jesus, hey, there's, you can make stones become into bread. And you're out here in the wilderness, you're hungry, so turn the stones into bread and eat them. The second temptation was Satan gave him a vision of the kingdoms and power of this world. And he's like, listen, I will give all of these things to you if you worship me. And the third temptation was Jesus, if you're the son of God, he took him to the top of the temple, jump off the temple because you can call on angels to make sure you do not get hurt. They will catch you. There will be a dramatic moment that will prove everyone to you, you know, your super Jesus powers. And then they will believe and you should do that. And Jesus says no to all three of those things. Now, listen, we, we had a whole sermon on this a while back. You can dig back into the podcast for the whole sermon. But the question I want to ask just briefly this morning is what is Satan tempting Jesus with in those three trials? And I think two things. First, Satan wants Jesus to abandon the suffering path of the cross. Both, tri- both trials two and three, right? Look at all the kingdoms of the world. You could have them if you worshiped me. And then trial three, hey, listen, jump off the temple. No, you, the Messiah shouldn't be hurt, shouldn't have to suffer pain. So join link with me and you won't have to. It's a clear alternative path to glory and power than the cross. But the rest of the New Testament makes clear the very means by which Jesus becomes Messiah is suffering. 
That's why Paul writes in Philippians 2, Jesus, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. In other words, what Paul is saying is there is a direct link between Jesus' acceptance of a humble, obedient, brutal death on a cross and his exaltation as the one to whom every person owes their allegiance and worship. And Satan is saying, you don't have to do that. Let's, let's figure out another way to go. So that's temptation one. The second temptation that Satan pushes Jesus into is for Jesus to abandon his trust in God as his father. The trials one and three, Satan begins by saying to Jesus, if you are the son of God, then do this. And in the, that sounds like Satan's making that an open question, but actually the Greek, it's, it's he's saying, since you are the son of God, right? Since you are the son of God, why are you out here in the wilderness starving? What kind of, what kind of God would make his son starve in the wilderness? Make these stones into bread. Or trial three, jump off the temple and note let, you know, have the angels save you. What, if you are the son of God, do that. Because what kind of father would make their son suffer pain? It strikes right at the heart of Jesus' identity as the son of God. And Jesus, of course, passes. Now, what does all this have to do with the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus saying, pray that you do not enter the temptation? Well, a couple of things. One is, the temptation is not just whether or not you're going to eat a ridiculous dessert that a co-worker is putting in front of you. It's not just about a moment. It's a season, it's a trial, where you're tempted to question your own identity in the Lord. Question the centrality of the gospel, which is a suffering servant who dies for his enemies at, on a cross. And a prolonged season where a brilliant supernatural being uses very intentional means to guide your way away from the way of Jesus. And so the reason why I think Jesus says, pray that you don't enter the trial is because when you look at Jesus' life, both his temptation in the wilderness and this moment of how difficult this was for him in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is saying, you need to pray that you don't enter into the temptation because you may not make it. Jesus, in some ways, in this narrative, barely makes it. He's sweating blood. And if he barely makes it, what chance do you have? What chance do I have? So when we pray, lead us not into temptation, in the words of Dallas Willard, what that prayer ultimately is, is it is a vote of no confidence in myself. It's, the, it's saying to the Lord, hey, I am not likely to get through it, so don't put me through it. Keep me out of it. Pray that you may never enter the trial. That's, that's so point one. Why does Jesus say that? Is, well, one, we are weak. We are weak. Pray that you keep us from the trial, Jesus, from the season of testing. Now, Joseph mentioned uh, one year ago, we all met. I was actually on vacation that Sunday, but we all met completely blissfully unaware on this very Sunday a year ago of what the next year was going to hold for us. So maybe you're sitting there thinking, Tim, this sermon is at least a year too late. Because if we had all been praying, hey, 
pray that we don't enter the trial. Maybe COVID would have stayed in China and never made its way over to the United States. But we didn't pray that, and I'm preaching the sermon a year too late. So let me just, I'm sorry, okay? We, we should have planned Luke a year earlier, so we would all have been praying this for a full year, and maybe would, I don't know. But listen, we are all right now in a trial. And maybe you're sitting there, no, man, my last year has been great. And maybe it has been, and if your last year has been great, two thumbs up, right? Congratulations. You're the only person I know that that's true of. Uh, and listen, that's not just me saying that. It's mental health professionals have noted, like, we're, we're struggling as a society. I just, like, as a pastor, as someone who talks to people, um, I, I've heard things that I never thought I would hear uh, from Christians. And in my own heart, my own wrestling. We are in the midst of a season of testing. As a church, as a culture, as a society. So in one sense, the sermon's too late. I'm sorry. And yet in another sense, we can now look at Jesus in the trial and begin to ask, okay, well, how, what do we do in this? If we're in the trial, what do we do to get through it? And, you know, I, I hope I'm not being too glib. Like, I, I know there's some of you right now, and you are in the trial, and you, you're resonating with that. I'm very much, the last year has been, um, I think, the hardest in my life. I say that because, we, you know, we had another year that was incredibly intense for the diagnosis we got with a child. It's like, I think the last year has been the most intense year of, of my entire life. At least I can say it's been the year when it's been the hardest to believe the full truth of the gospel because of what I've seen in the life of Christians around me. And that's a direct statement. And, and listen, that, that's just where, that's where I'm at. I, I believe the gospel. Like, it's true. But it's never been harder for me to believe it than what I've seen over the last year. And I know some of you are in a very similar place. So what do we do in the trial? Right? It's too late. I failed you. We didn't pray. Keep us out of the trial. So now we're in it. So what do we do? And I, I want to say it's for, the first thing we do is we have to confront our trials with prayer. That's what Jesus does. He goes off and has a night of prayer, which ultimately is the night before he will be crucified. He doesn't sleep. He prays through the night until, and this is our text for next week, that people come to arrest him, to take him away, to kill him. He'll have a sleepless night of prayer. And so we confront our trials with prayer. And I want to say three things about what trial prayer is. Number one, trial prayer makes the voice of God central. There are always a lot of people saying a lot of things. A lot of voices to dominate your attention, to grab your heart and imagination. And what's clear in each of Jesus' temptations with Satan is he, is he is quoting scripture first, but then secondly in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's in the final stages of his trial, he's speaking to the Father. He's praying to the Father. And I, one, of the, one of the things I heard in our, our, the course of our teaching team uh, meeting, thinking out this sermon was, what, what would have happened in Genesis 3 back when Satan first tempted Adam and Eve at the tree? If they had just, you know, let's stop. Let's bring God in. Right? There's lots of things being said right now about Satan, about God. Let's, let's, let's hear from the Lord before we decide what to do next. And one of the things I think that's consistent with Genesis 3 in the last year of my life is how very rarely I heard Christians speaking Scripture. Or out of my prayer time, this is what the Lord has brought me to. I heard a lot of other voices brought into the conversation, but very rarely the scripture is the voice of God. And Jesus, in the first 
temptation, when, when Satan says to him, make these stones become bread, why are you starving in the wilderness if you are the son of God? Jesus' response to that is Deuteronomy chapter 8, which reads, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now that's an overwrought, that, that statement's quoted all the time. What Jesus is saying, I mean, feel the emotional weight of that. He's saying, I will starve to death because I don't need bread. I am hungry for the Lord to speak to me, so I will not eat until the voice of the Lord speaks to me. Do you have that sort of hunger for the voice of God? And that, listen, we are, the, right, the correct answer if you're a Christian is, well, of course I do. But, like, look at your last week. Would your last seven days suggest the one voice you want to hear from in this moment is God? Trial prayer makes the voice of God central. And then secondly, trial prayer must be done in community. That Jesus, Messiah, Son of God, goes to his disciples and says, pray with me. And if Jesus needed people around him, you need people around you. Are there people who are, who are contending for you in prayer right now? Again, in the midst of the trial, and if Again, if your take is, I'm not in a trial, I think you're, you're naive. You're naive. I think of it like this. When I was, in a, uh, when I was just graduated from college, 2006, I went on a, a West Coast road trip. And one of the places we stopped with me and two friends was Kings Canyon National Park. I've talked about that trip before. But one, one of the unique parts of that part of the trip is uh, I think that's my, my favorite national park to go to. Because most of the national parks are very, very filled with people. They're very busy. But Kings Canyon is very remote. It's also in between Yosemite, which is probably the most famous, and Sequoia, which is another well-traveled park. And so a lot of people skip Kings Canyon because they want to hit those two. And then also Kings Canyon, to get actually to the heart of the park, it's, a long, it's very remote. It's a long drive. So we made all of it, and it was great. There was, like, no one there. It was really remote. And so my two friends decide they want to go, they want to go backcountry hiking. They want to hike to altitude. They want to hike where there's snow, where it's really cold at night, and there's crazy wildlife. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm good. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stay back to where there's people and bathrooms. And so that's what I chose uh, to do. But our campsite was in the park, and there was no one else there in the part of the park where I was. I mean, there was, it was a long drive before I got anywhere else. And unlike most parts of the park, there weren't bear canisters uh, to put your food in. And so it was sort of like, you know, basically the park was like, be careful, right? But bears, they have really good sense of smell, and so you can put it in your car, and the bear will get into your car to get your food. And if you put it in the tent with you, they're coming in with you to the tent. Um, so I'm just, I'm there by myself, Kings National, uh, Kings Canyon National Park. And I start wondering, you know, should I go and camp where there are other people? And you have to pay, there's like 20 bucks and I had no money. And I, so I begin wrestling with this. Like, do I, do I camp alone, just me and the bears? Or do I go, I, I pay some money so I'm around other people who will hear me if I start screaming because the bears attacking me. Right, what am I, and I paid the money because I did not want to be alone in the wilderness with the bear. And likewise, when you're going through a trial and you're not alone with bears, like there is a actual supernatural enemy who has a wonderful plan to destroy your life. Do you have people surrounding you who will hear you if you scream? Who, who are lifting you in prayer right now, who are fasting on your behalf? Jesus himself says, I can't, I can't do this alone. Who are the people around you right now praying you through your trial? Trial prayer must be done in Community. And then the last thing I want to say about, about trial prayer is that trial prayer pursues the cost of obedience. 
But the central prayer Jesus prays here is, is one that's been well-trod, and, and ultimately it's, it's kind of the typical evangelical prayer. Whenever we ask God for a bold thing, we close it with like, but whatever your will is, God, just do that. Um, and, and yet, like, I think at times we can miss the fu- how brutal that prayer is. And I love the way Eugene Peterson translates this prayer in Luke 22 when he says, what Jesus is saying in that moment is, God, not what, it's not what I want. What do you want? And to throw that open-handed question to the Lord, what do you want? That's what I will do. That is a brutal prayer. It is such a brutal prayer that God the Father sends an angel to minister to Jesus after he prays it. Right, so this idea, God, not my will, your will um, be done. It's a, it's a, it's a nice kind of cliched prayer, but to actually look at God and say, it's not what I want, what do you want, is a, is a brutal, brutal prayer. And it raises the question, how in the world do we get the strength to actually pray that prayer? Because that is ultimately the prayer of the trial is not just get me out, but what do you want in me? Obviously, we're in the trial for a reason. So, God, what do you want in me? I want out. That's my prayer, and that's what, that's a good, it's an okay prayer to pray, actually. Jesus makes clear. The Lord's Prayer says, lead me away from temptation. Lead me away from the trial. So it's okay to pray that, but, but the other prayer in the midst of the trial is, okay, I'm in it. So what do you want, God? What do you want? So as we move into the the concluding section of this story. What's interesting to me is Jesus has clearly asked the disciples to surround him in prayer, but he doesn't say to them, pray for me. Keep me out of the trial or keep, get, help me get through the temptation, right? I'm about to go and face down death itself. I'm gonna go to a cross. I'm gonna die tomorrow. I need your prayers. That's not what he says. What he says to the, to the disciples is actually pray for yourself. Pray that you do not enter into the temptation. And I find that really, that's just fascinating to me. That Jesus, even, even though he is asking for them to surround him in a community of prayer right now, he's not saying, pray for me to get through the trial. He says, pray for yourselves that you don't have to go through the trial. Why? Because ultimately it's the same thing. For the disciples to pray, Jesus or God, give Jesus the strength to go through the trial is the same prayer as themselves praying, God, keep me out of the trial. Because the reality of Gethsemane is if Jesus gets through this trial and gets to the cross and fulfills the Father's will all the way to the point of death, it means whatever trials you and I face in this life, we will never face the trial of of the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus faces. For the disciples to pray, keep me from the trial, what they're actually praying for is get Jesus through the trial, so I never have to go through that trial. It's let Jesus take my place fully so that whatever trials I experience in this life, they are but a shadow of the trial that Jesus walked through in this garden in this moment. And so the way you and I ultimately get through our trials, we get through COVID or through whatever it is you're facing through the course of this past year, is first, you have to know that at the end of your trial is redemption, right? Is salvation. Is that whatever it is you're going to face and whatever it is you're going to lose in this time, whatever it is that's going to be taken from you through the trial, ultimately you're going to get it back. It it might not be the same thing, but you're going to get salvation back 
on the other end of this trial. And if you don't believe that, there's nothing that will get you through your trials in life. If you don't believe on the other end, what you, what you give away to God in obedience, when you say to him, what do you want? And he takes it from you. If you don't believe you're going to get it back in the end, it's going to be really hard to make it through the trial. And what the garden shows is that when you give it to God, Jesus has already paved that path of losing something before the Father and being given it back through salvation. And you may be, listen, that just, that always sounds like pie in the sky thinking, right? Especially if you're someone that's really trouble believing in God and, and believing that it's just difficult for you. It's like, that's just pie in the sky thinking. And yet, like how much of human existence is, is built on, on eradicating evil, on doing away with suffering, on trying to pursue justice and goodness and beauty. And there's a reason we all pursue those things. It's because we have a sense that if we keep pursuing them one day, we will break through, and the reality of this world will not be the trial. It will not be the Garden of Gethsemane. It will not be death or suffering or pain. It will be salvation, redemption. So we keep pushing through. We keep, that's not just pie in the sky thinking. That is the human experience. And Jesus right here is saying, yes, and I paved the way out of the trial and into salvation. But the only way, the only other way, if you're in the trial right now, that you know you will get through it is if you know Jesus is as present with you right now in your own trial as he was in the garden with Joseph. That whatever your trial is right now, Jesus is not a distant deity that's you know, just distant and, and looking at you with suspicion, wondering, will they actually make it through? He is actually fully engaged and involved in every tear you shed, every Every moment of pain, every flare of anger, he's with you in it. Because ultimately, the reason why Jesus is sweating, uh, you know, uh, sweating blood here in prayer is not simply because he's going to die for sins, although that's true. Right now, he is taking every trial of the human experience into himself. He's saying, Father, give it all to me. Every sin, every Every broken part of this world, give it to me. I'm going to take it on myself. I'm going to take it to a cross. I'm going to bury it in the grave, and I'm going to raise it to life three days later. And I think it's hard for us just to, to enter into full, like just to say, well, Jesus died for our sins. Yes, that's true, but there's an emotional weight to that statement. And as we conclude, I want to read an extended quote from Francis Bufford, who in his book, Unapologetic, I think describes what Jesus is taking on here in the garden, why he is sweating blood, why this is such an intense moment for him. Francis Bufford writes, the pain fills him up, displaces thought as much for him as it has for everyone who has ever been stuck to one of these horrible contrivances or for anyone else who dies in pain from any of the world's grim arsenal of possibilities. And yet he goes on taking them. It's not what he does, it is what he is. He is all open door to sorrow, suffering, guilt, despair, horror, everything that cannot be escaped. And he does not even try to escape it. He turns to meet it, claims it all as his own. This is mine now, he is saying, and he embraces it with all that is left in him, each dark act, each dripping memory, as if, it were something precious, as if it were himself, itself the loved child tottering homeward on the road. But there is so much of it. So many injured children. So many locked rooms. So much lonely anger. 
So many bombs from public places. So much vicious steel. So many bored teenagers at roadblocks. So many drunk girls at parties someone thought they could have a little fun with. So many jokes that go too far. So much ruining greed. So much sick ingenuity. So much burned skin. The world he claims, claims pain. It burns and stings. It splinters and gouges. It locks him round and drags him out. And when you go through the trial, those words, that, those, that, that is the experience of human life. And what the gospel in the Garden of Gethsemane ultimately announces to us, when Jesus says, pray that you do not enter into the temptation, temptation, once it's like, hey, pray that you never have to walk through that. But it's also when you walk through that, we know Jesus is not just with you in it, but he's walked that path. He's taken all of the things that you're suffering through into himself. He claims it as his own. He takes it onto the cross himself. He buries it into the grave, and he raises it to new life. So whatever trial you are in in this moment, right now, to approach Jesus in faith means that your trial will end the same way his, his did his resurrection life. Let's pray. Father, in different ways, the last year is, has hit us with different questions, different frustrations, different, different realities, Lord. For some of us, that the emotional weight of the last year has been a hard burden to carry. It's not just COVID, but other pieces of suffering, a diagnosis or a death entered into our world. And it's, it's compounded the, the bro- deep brokenness of this world. For others of us, it's we've, we've lost relationships. We've lost friendships. We, this world just feels uncertain. And so God, we, we now, we just enter into Jesus in the garden where he felt all of those things. In that moment, he was abandoned by his friends. He was enduring the suffering trial of this world. All for us, so that in our trials, we could look to him and know he is the way to the Father. Father, help us look to him as the way out, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.